Today's text from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the third chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, a recent essay in Time magazine summed it all up quite well. Perhaps some of you read it. It was entitled, Mary Hallowmas. The title comes from combining two words, the word Halloween with the word Christmas, and thus you end up with the word Hallowmas. The point of the essay by a Miss Gibbs is to demonstrate that we've so managed to merge in our culture one holiday into another these days that we've lost the significance and we've lost the essence of each of them independently. And she's right, isn't she? We don't seem to know anymore where one holiday begins and where another holiday ends. They're all sort of lumped together and they sort of merge together. A local case in point, one area department store whose name begins with an M like in Macy's, <laughs> had Christmas decorations in it already in mid-September of this year and perhaps earlier I was there in mid-September and there were already Christmas decorations up. And Miss Gibbs began her essay by quoting George Bernard Shaw. Shaw said, a perpetual holiday is a good working definition of hell. Now that's a bit of an overstatement to be sure. And considering that Shaw himself wasn't a Christian, it's certainly an understatement concerning the nature of hell, which is much more than a perpetual holiday, which sadly Shaw undoubtedly knows for himself now. But Gibbs makes a good point. As she says, we've supersized our holidays like we do hamburgers. We've supersized our holidays so that they start sooner and they last longer and they cost more than ever before to such a degree, she says, that the calendar pages pull and they tear and we don't even know which holiday we're meant to be celebrating anymore. And the essay ends with this reasonable proposal. In the spirit, she says, of holiday acceleration, which we all do, she says, let's make some early New Year's resolutions this year, even now. Namely, no costume purchases in September and no holly, holly before Halloween. Let's not rush, she says, but rather let's savor the holidays one by one, preserve their power and their flavor and our sanity. And I agree with Miss Gibbs. Put a good spacer, put a good spacer between Halloween and Christmas so that we don't end up with Hallowmas instead of Christmas taking Christ out of it all. And that's where the liturgical Christian church has an advantage that so many others don't have. The advantage because, you see, we do, in the liturgical Christian church, have a good spacer that separates the seasons and preserves their power and their flavor. And you know what we call that good spacer between Halloween and Christmas? No, not Thanksgiving. That's but a day, talking about a season, we call it Advent. We call it Advent, the season of Advent before Christmas during which God works through his word to prepare his people's heart to celebrate the coming of his son, the Christ, 
the gift of gifts that he's given to the world. That's what the season of Advent is all about. And note well, I said God prepares his people. God is the one who prepares us in the season of Advent. And he does it by working through his word to get us to do what for us doesn't at all come naturally. He prepares us for the celebration of the coming of his son and for his son's second visible advent at the end of time. He prepares us by enabling us through the likes of one of, like John the Baptist and his word, he prepares us and enables us to repent. Because repentance doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that we would fend off. It's something that we would rather busy ourselves over against and justify our busyness with other things rather than repenting by admitting our need for the one who is coming and by thinking about that need that we so desperately have. And so don't think for a minute that we don't need the spacer season. Don't think for a minute that we don't need the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Don't think that there's not a place in your December for the downtime of reflection upon your life, of recognition of your sins, repentance for the same. Don't think, as the Pharisees did, that you've got it all together to such a degree that you have nothing at all to confess as the King of Kings comes to you. Nothing of which to repent as you prepare to welcome none less than God himself in the flesh. To be sure, in Pharisaic fashion, the world would have you concede the season of Advent to it. And it succeeded for the most part in getting so many to concede the season of Advent. So many have already rushed into the Christmas thing. Or if you don't give it up altogether, then at least you can redefine the season of Advent. If you insist on keeping the name, then at least redefine the season, strip Advent, the world would tell you, of its penitential character. Strip Advent of its penitential character because after all, you're too busy for reflection on things, on yourself and your need for the one who comes. You're too busy for recognition of your sin. You're too busy for repentance, for remorse over it. And besides, all those R words, reflection, recognition, repentance, remorse, they're not fun words. They don't register very well on the fun meter. And this is the season of fun and fantasy and fiction. As old Burl Ives used to sing, it's a holly, jolly good time of the year. And repentance and remorse, they just don't budge the fun meter at all. And so down with John the Baptist. And away with this notion of repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Reminds me of the little seven-year-old boy who had done something that really irritated his mother. And so she gave him a good swat, a legal one, <laughs> on his posterior. She sent him down to his room and she said, now you stay in your room. You go in there and you shut the door behind you and you stay in your room until you're sorry enough to come out. And about five minutes later, she heard the creaking of the door. And there in the doorway stood her little boy, frown on his face, 
dejected but still defiant. And his mother said, well, are you sorry enough to come out of the room now? To which the stubborn little boy said, no, but I'm sorry enough to want to have the door left open. How much like stubborn little children we all are. When it comes to the matter of repentance in life, we really don't like to engage it. We like to pass over it quickly if we must do it at all. Standing in the doorway, going through the motions of it all, saying, I'm sorry, Lord, but saying it just so that we can get ourselves out of the box that we know that our sin has put us in. Not really mourning within over the sadness and displeasure that our sinful disposition and our sinful thoughts, words, or deeds have caused our Father or have caused trouble in the lives of others or the horrible pain and suffering our sins have caused our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, who speaking of his own impending death on the cross said it's for this purpose of paying for the sins of these sinners. It's for this purpose, he says, that I was born into this world. Superficial repentance, rushing over it all. Luther called it Galgenreihe in the German. The repentance of the gallows, he called it, a convenient repentance. Here's what he said, not a regret of having offended God, but merely a regret of having injured oneself, getting caught. Such supposed repentance, Luther says, is very common. He says, I myself have often repented in this way, and I've deplored having done something foolish and stupid which caused me hurt. I was more ashamed of the stupidity and its effect upon me than I was of the offense against God. Sorry, repentant, to a degree, the degree that my sin results in inconveniences that it causes me in my life. Sorry enough to admit that we aren't comfortable with the disturbance in our lives that our sins have caused, and so we'll open up the door a little bit and we'll stand stubbornly in the doorway staying, saying, well, you stay there in your room, Lord, and I'll stay here in my room where I can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, and then we'll keep the door between us open just a little bit, just in case it gets kind of ugly in here and dark in here. And that's the way so many figure repentance is in their life. Such convenient and such superficial repentance is just what John the Baptist Confronted in our text for today, people were coming to him, as you heard in the gospel text, by the hundreds and more. People coming to him in groves, many undoubtedly drawn, at first not for the right reason, but because of curiosity. Here this man, he is out in the wilderness in this camel hair garment, belt about his waist, eating locusts and honey. Strange looking man. They come out to see him. And yet the power of the word that he preached, the effective power of God's call to repentance within their lives works, obviously pierced through the hearts of many. And that's why St. Matthew says, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the church of the day, they were above that. They'd come out of curiosity to be sure. They heard the same word that the other people heard, 
But the word they heard didn't meet with repentance in them. It didn't meet with confession of sin and faith within them. No, it met instead with stubborn resistance and with rejection within them. And consequently, John the Baptist cries out, as we heard in today's gospel reading, and what does he say? You brood of vipers, translated, you son of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He obviously wasn't concerned about marketing the faith, was he? But he was concerned about stating the truth and the condition of their hearts that was going to condemn them eternally to hell. Repent, therefore, he said, out of love for them, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the uncompromising advent call of John the Baptist, the voice preparing in the wilderness the way for the Lord, nothing at all new, because, you see, that was the theme of every Old Testament prophet, too. Repent, they said, throughout the ages to the people of God. It was the preamble to the sermons of our Lord Jesus Christ, for as Scripture says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the preface of the message that was proclaimed by his chosen twelve. Scripture says, So they went out and they preached that men should repent. And right before our Lord's ascension into heaven, he gathers the disciples together and he says to them, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name unto all the nations. You see, the call of God to man throughout the ages has always been repent. And God's call to us right now, still in this 21st century that doesn't like to hear the message, is still the same. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So no matter why you've come today, whether you're a first-time visitor or a long-time member, an energetic teen or a weary and a worn-out and aging saint, no matter if you've come because of habit or curiosity or obligation or a heartfelt need to be here where God has promised to meet you, no matter what the reason would be, the Advent call is the same for us all. Prepare the way for the Lord. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how we prepare. We prepare the way for the Lord through repentance. That's how we prepare our hearts for Christmas. And it's not something, again, that we can do of ourselves. What is repentance? Luther answers. To repent means to feel the wrath of God in earnest because of one's sin, so that the sinner experiences, he says, anguish of heart and is filled with a painful longing, with a painful longing for the salvation and for the mercy of Almighty God. And more than that, he says, repentance is not penitence alone, but it's also faith. Faith in Christ that apprehends his forgiveness lest the penitent perish. You see, it's that painful longing as we recognize our need and then that confident celebration of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Those two things, that painful longing and that confidence in Christ that we celebrate together, that is true repentance. Repentance worked within you by the Holy Spirit, faith in Christ, 
worked within you by the same Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, repentance and faith are there. Simultaneously, repentance and faith, you see, are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. In fact, they first came to most of you simultaneously in holy baptism on that very day, enabling you to say in the one hand, I renounce the devil and all of his works and all of his ways, repentance of the first order, and at the same time and on the same day and simultaneously to say, and I believe in God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when you were baptized into his name, and that's faith of the first order. Simultaneously, the same day, repentance and faith came into your life together, and repentance and faith in Christ will hold your life together until earth's repeating seasons of Advent and Christmas are for you no more, or for the world no more, because earth's temporal and sin-crippled realities will then have given way to the eternal realities of heaven, whether it's for you individually or for the world at large. So, dear friends, don't rush the Christmas season. We'll get there. Advent's important. Advent is doing its work. Advent unsettles us a bit concerning our sins so that we don't get wrapped up in all the other things of this otherwise busy season. It's unsettling you concerning your sins so that you won't be content to stand defiantly in the doorway with it, but rather will long, long for Christ to come to you and cleanse you of it and make you presentable for the Christmas celebration that's taking place down the hall and around the corner. And how does he do it? He does it as he's done it for a thousand years and more. He does it through his word that you hear and that you're hearing. He does it through his sacraments that you receive the means of grace through which he delivers to you in our day in this 21st century what he won for you in the cross back there in the first century. In that specific day of time when he came in the fullness of time, when his task was indeed that task for which he had been born into the world and he accomplished it, completed it, and now he delivers to you through his word and sacraments that which he accomplished for you back then. Back then when upon the cross the sins of every sinner weighed their full weight upon the sin-bearer who gladly bore them the cross upon which the blood of God was shed as the Lamb was bled. The Lamb of whom John the Baptist spoke and said, Behold, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that cross your sin was paid for in full by the sin-bearer who was indeed everything and much more than what John the Baptist said he would be. And so we sang, on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he, John, brings glad tidings of this King of Kings. All praise, eternal Son, to thee, whose advent sets thy people free whom with the Father we adore, and Holy Spirit evermore. Advent. Would you really have Christmas without it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.